So we get to move into the second sermon of our uh, Sermon on the Mount series. And I was thankful for Craig, who was able to come yester- yesterday, last week, and, uh, and help us through the Beatitudes. And he did a wonderful job, right? Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, he did a wonderful job walking through the Beatitudes with us and, and allowing us to see uh, what, what Jesus wanted to, to teach us. And, and one of the crazy things about this sermon series is the Sermon on the Mount is the most written about sermon or passage of Scripture out of the entire Bible. There is no other passage that's more that's more written, that's more focused on, because it's the only real place where we see Jesus' um, teaching. So much of the Bible is written around Jesus' actions because it's recording God's action, and it doesn't really dive a ton into the teaching. And so when Matthew specifically assembled Jesus' teachings into three chapters Man, us in the, in the new world, in the enlightened world, we're all over it. We're like, yes, this is it. So we just write book after book after book and just keep on going. So I say all that because there's no way that we are scratching even the surface of the importance of this text. There's no way we're doing it a justice. And we could sit here. I was actually thinking about it. We could sit in the Sermon on the Mount for over a year, every single Sunday, just going through the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and we're not going to, um, but we could do it. And so there's that much content here, and I just really wanted to, to bring that out because it's, it's just important that, that, you know, I don't ever want us to look at the Bible and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that part. Oh, yeah, I know that. That's, yeah, that's, that's that part. I got that. Because every single time we come at the Bible with a casual attitude of, oh, yeah, I know that. We so easily miss over the life-bringing words that God gives us. If we ever read our Bible, oh, yeah, 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 pass, 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 what's what's new, what's interesting? We miss the life-giving words of the Holy Spirit to us. And so, you know, we're going to dive into this today. We're not going to get all the way through every avenue. And, And if you're in a promise group, the great thing is you get to read this and pull out the pull out the other things that I didn't get to mention. You get to pull out, oh, but God said this to me. And, and that's a big deal. So make sure you get into a promise group. That was good, eh? All right. Our text today is Matthew um, 5, 13 to 48. So we're not going to read the whole thing all at once. Um, if you uh, just open up the tablet, you'll see that there's a ton of scripture. Um, but you're going to follow along with me. I'm just going to start us off with, uh, with verse 13 to 16 here. So, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except for to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they can see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let me pray. 
God, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. Thank you so much for what you're going to walk us through today with relationships. Thank you so much that you're going to uh, teach us and, uh, and give us a reminder of the boundaries in which, we, in which we walk. And, God, I pray that today we would see why these boundaries exist, that they aren't arbitrary, but that, but that they actually fulfill a purpose. And so, Jesus, I pray that, that you would enlighten us Give us direction today and strengthen us as, as followers of you in your name. Amen. You're the light of the world. Okay, so light of the world is a big saying. You're the light of the world. It really comes to a realization that uh, Israel itself is a city that was expected by the prophets to be the model city. This is the model city of what humanity should attain to, of what the other nations should imitate. This is what it means to be the light of the world. You are the model. This is what you are. Um, oftentimes, just as a side, uh, people use light of the world as an individual thing. Like, um, you know, I, as I go to work on a Monday morning, I am the light of the world in my office place. Okay, maybe. But really, it's saying, it's said of you Jews, as the nation, you're the light of the world. Everybody should be imitating the way you do government, the way you, the way you do society, the way you live your life as a community. That's what you should be doing. And so what does it mean now as we transition that away from Israel to move into the church world? I'll tell you, it doesn't mean the individual weight is on Pastor Devin to be the light of the world. Devin, when you go shopping at Walmart, you are the light of the world. Everybody is looking at you. The weight is not on the individual. The weight is on the collective. It's on the people of God that says, you are the light of the world. When people look at a church and they look at the people who gather faithfully on a Sunday and they look at what they do, what are they seeing? What are they seeing? Is what they're seeing the light of the world, the hope in which everybody should model their life after? What is it that the church brings that makes it the light of the world? And this is why it's so important that we understand that, that meeting on a Sunday is not the end of what we do, but it is part of what we do. And so we are actually called to be the light of the world, the, the community Get this, let's make it personal here. This church right here is called to be one of the communities in our town that points the direction for how others should live. That's what light of the world means. That's like, oh my gosh, that's a ton. So what do we do as a community that leads the rest of our community into health, into a knowledge of God, into the way it, it means to be human? And, uh, and, and Christian, this is that loaded term, you are the light of the world. And you're like, whoa, thanks, Rob. We're good now. Let's go home. Um, but we just got started. <laughs> so this is, this is awesome. Uh, we're always meant to be that global influencer. And I believe that Promise Church, as we establish and as we move forward, are going to be a community influencer in partnership with the other churches in town as God calls us along and says we're going to be a community influencer. We are going to start to have impact in this town and in the surrounding areas, making things better. And, and guess what? The rest of the passage actually starts to allow us to see some of it 
as, as we move forward. Today, I'm accepting text messages. Um, if you have any thoughts, uh, questions, concerns, rude innuendo, put them in the, uh, put them in the text message thing, and uh, they'll get read at the end. So mm. anyways, it's anonymous, so <laughs> that's good. Um, and and we're gonna be we're gonna be good there. So let's look into the next verses. Um, verse 17 to 20 says, uh, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." Well, that's interesting. Um, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, which is a letter. Not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Okay, so Jesus says in verse 17, don't think I came to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That is a really interesting statement that as I looked into, I started asking, what does that mean? Like, (laughs) what does it mean that Jesus is going to fulfill the law? And as a uh, post-Reformation Pentecostal, I am a person that says, oh, well, that means that the law becomes nothing and, and we don't have to listen to the law anymore and we're free. You know, we can do whatever we want. Um, that's, that's awesome, right? That Jesus abolished the law. Oh, no, no, wait. He said he didn't abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. Oh, what's the difference? What's the difference? What does it mean when Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law? Because he didn't come to abolish it. He came to actually do something with it. He came to actually say, this is fulfilled. So when you fulfill something, you, what you've done with it is you have accomplished its purpose. The law has a purpose, and it needs to be accomplished. Jesus accomplishes the purpose of the law. And it makes us question, so what was the purpose of the law? Why did the law exist? Why was it even there in the first place? And so in Exodus 29, which is a good place to go if you're going to try to understand something about the law, it's a good place to actually go to the law, right? You get it from the source. So Exodus 29, 45 and 46 says this. It says, oh, uh, actually, I'm just going to read 44 just for interest sake, but 45 and 46 is where I am. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron, um, Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to, uh, to me to serve as priests. Okay, that's interesting. But then it says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God and they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. All of these laws, all of these laws that have just been listed before have a purpose. They have a purpose to set the people of Israel apart as what? The people with whom God dwells. Israel is the people with whom God dwells. I will live with them. Jesus fulfills the law and God dwells with humanity as a human. 
This is a big deal because the whole purpose of the law was so that people could live with God. The tent of, of, of meeting, the tabernacle, was a place where people could meet with God. The, te- the temple was a place where people could meet with God. And Jesus fulfills all of that because it is in the person of Jesus that we meet with God. So Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law. You now meet with God through me because I am God and I am man. That's why it's so important that we look at Jesus and say he is the only way to God because that's the way that we that God has set up that we can approach him. It's not that's some ideological like arrogance to say Jesus is the only way to God. It's actually very logical to say if Jesus is God becoming human, then a human can now meet with God the same way a human meets with a human instead of any other way. So the purpose of the law was so that God could live with his people. The law is not how to impress God and gain his approval. I think I need to say that again. The law is not how to impress God and gain his approval. It never was that. It was always be aware of the differences between me, God, and human, be aware of the differences and approach it with constant respect and diligence. So there's a big difference there. And so we we see that. And I think I'm going to get into that soon. The law sets up the way that God can live with humanity. If any human fulfills everything that's, that's set up in the law, then God is actually able to live with them. Why? Because the human has rejected all forms of evil. The human has put it all off and said, I will not embrace the evil that's in this world, and I will embrace something different. I will embrace a righteous way of living, a way that God accepts, that God is like, this is what I created people for. If any human could do that, put off evil, separate the evil from within their own heart, and say, nope, that's selfish ideology. I'm not going to do that. Oh, nope. That, and, and be able to govern every moment of their heart and overcome evil, which surrounds them at every turn. In death and in scarcity, there is evil, and we react to it. And so there's no human that's able to do that, and so we're not able to be one with God. There's that separation there that's like, oh, wow, I get it. And so, as well as the fact that God is bigger than us, so it's any human that fulfills all these things, God can live with. So, in I- Israel's history, God set up something that was really interesting. We have a very cool system here where every individual chooses to follow Jesus and you're all judged according to your own actions. That is not the way that Israel was set up. Israel was set up differently. That one representative can purify all That's the way the Israel is. You see it in the priests, that a priest goes and offers the sacrifice for all of the people. They go and they cover all of the sins of the people so that all of the people of God can come and meet with God. The king, if you read 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, the entire nation is judged not on the individual response of the people in the nations, but is judged on the action of the king. The entire nation is judged on the action of the king. 
And so it follows very logically that as we see Jesus as finally the person who has rejected all forms of evil, who is not enmeshed in the evil world that we all live in, we see Jesus as the one who fulfills the law and all of humanity is purified through the one. So it's a very biblical concept that follows all the way through that humanity is purified by the one. Very important. Okay, now we're going to get into the bulk of what we're doing. Um, we're going to fly through this because what we're doing is we're, we want to, uh, the passage takes us through a new, a new way of looking at it. So, so you know, we've, we've, gone, we've come through fulfilling the law, but then we go through a bunch of relational integrity pieces, building relational integrity. And, and he transitions, Jesus transitions into this whole point of building relational transit, uh, building relational um, integrity. And he's doing this because if we're going to be an example, if we're going to be the light of the world, of what it looks like if God lives with us, then there are some integrity pieces that we need to carry through as a community. The first one is dealing with anger properly. Right? If you're going to be an example, then we better be able to deal with anger properly. So he gives us a little, a little thing here. And it says, You have heard that it was said of old that you shall not murder, for whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say that to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to hell. If, uh, so if you are offering a gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has done something against you, he doesn't say, and you're angry, but it's implied. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the garden, you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. This whole thing about being put into prison is really important because this is the way that the world actually does it. The normal way is, oh, well, you know, you're liable and I'm going to take you to court and I'm going to solve this outside of relationship. I'm going to make somebody else do something and you're going to go to jail. Well, that's the way the world does it. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You are the light of the world. You're going to do it different. Sort your stuff out. Sort it out. Sorted out with an integrity and a respect that says, no, there's, we're going to actually function differently than the world. Because when you function different than the world, you become a light to the world. And so, really, really important. You reconcile with people. Reconcile. It doesn't mean that you become a walking mat. It means that you separate the offense away from the individual. You say, yeah, you offended me. I get it. That goes here. That's not right. You as a person, I'm going to reconcile with you. I'm going to forgive you. You come to terms with your accuser. You come to a point where it's like, okay, somebody comes at you and says, you did something wrong. Well, that might, that might get anger in you as well, where you respond defensively. You respond in a way that you're just like, no. You come to terms. You actually spend time. Come to terms is a legal understanding. You spend time and you engage the offense. You talk it through. You understand it from the other person's perspective. And you wait patiently through it together. The call is to come to terms and you come together. 
Okay, so as if that's not hard enough, Jesus just goes on like he didn't drop a bomb there. He's just like, whatever, cool, you got it, right? You good, everybody? Just, this is how you deal with anger? So don't lust, by the way. What? Random. Why lust right after anger? Well, partly because lust is something that drives us in a world of scarcity. Guys, there are limited resources. In a world of scarcity, we covet and we lust. Lust becomes a power position. If I am able to lust after something and get it, then it means that I have power. Power in a world of scarcity and death is actually kind of where, where God's like, okay, here's where the problem is. You're recognizing the evil, scarcity and death, but your response to it is actually perpetuating scarcity and death. So he says, watch this, um, in, in lust, he says, you have heard that it said don't commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better for you to lose a mem- one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Look at this, guys. When you, when you choose to not lust, one, you keep trust in your relationship. That's good. When you choose to fight against lust, you keep trust in your relationship. Your spouse or your other, your significant other, you keep trust in that relationship. That's a huge deal. You know, it's, there's this whole thing about cut off your, or gouge out your eye or cut off your wrist. And people are like, oh, we don't know what to do with it. I've read a bunch of commentaries. We don't know, like, is he he serious? Is he literal? Okay, here's, here's where I believe it's coming from. We've already talked about evil, how it's enmeshing us, how how we exist in it. And in this passage, God is saying, separate yourself by the power of God. Separate yourself from the effects of scarcity and death and evil. Separate it out. Push it off. Because when God actually comes, what he's doing is he is removing evil. Any part that you're clinging on to that perpetuates the evil... Any part that you're holding on to, take for example, if it's lust. God, I'm not going to, there's nothing wrong with lust. I didn't hurt anybody. There's nothing wrong with pornography. I didn't hurt anybody. I'm just looking at somebody who consensually took some pictures. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm guilt-free in this. When you hold on to that, when you hold on to, to something that God's like, no, that doesn't work inside of what is right and good, when God removes it, he also removes what's holding on to it. In the end, it's like, you're done. That, that's not coming. That is not coming. And if you can't let it go, it will be let go for you. And part of you, you cut off your hand. And it's like, whoa, why? Because God is so serious about purifying the world, about bringing him to dwell with us, that that's where he goes at the end. Now, t- today's a day of grace. But this is what God is doing, and he's preparing us to say, guys, take this seriously. The vision that God has of the future is one where evil, death, scarcity is not a factor, and so we push against it. We don't own it. Oh, because there's scarcity, God, I get to, I get to, to do this. I get to exert power over somebody else. No, no, no. I don't know. Live as though the evil is something that you're constantly pushing against. 
And you're just like, no, that's not it. Um, sin and, and sexual evil is something that can easily become part of our core identity. So our sexuality becomes really part of our core identity. And the question here is not, not about, oh, well, do I, do I have to, you know, be this certain way? Do I have to be married in a heterosexual marriage? No, the Bible doesn't say that. What the Bible says is about your sexual identity, which is a part of every single one of us. The Bible says you give that up to God and you say, God, this is yours. You are my center identity. And whatever you do to redefine me, because every single one of us, every single one of us goes through a redefinition. And whatever you do, God, I trust you with it. I'm giving you that element of me and every Christian when it comes down to don't lust, he's addressing, he's addressing sexual identity stuff, and he's just like, you give that to God. You give it to God and say, God, you take this. You defined me. God becomes our central identity piece. And so what happens with lust is, is it becomes as broken. It breaks a relationship. It breaks the trust. What are you really thinking? You know, what, what I can't hear. Um, so when, when, I just, there's an important Part. When you lust after somebody, when you're in a marriage relationship, it's like you're wishing to have sex with them without the guilt. You're wishing, oh, if only I could. If only this could happen. And, and when that's happening, that's happening inside your heart, and it breaks trust. It really does. And so Jesus follows up really, really well with this one. He says, oh, by the way, avoid divorce. So the verse is uh, 31, 32. It was also said, whoever divorces a wife, let him give her a a certificate of divorce. But I say that everyone who divorces his wife, except for on grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay. Oh, Jesus, you're just like, come on. This is a lot. But he's still talking about building integrity. Put it back into the larger context of who we are. We are a people who are a city on a hill. We are an example of what it looks like when evil has been removed. Now, the church has the same divorce rates as the world right now. Just statistically, that's kind of where it lays. And, and God's saying, hold up, hold up. He recognizes that divorce happens he actually talks about Moses, who gave a certificate of divorce. Um, he recognizes that relationships break down. But he's like, you need to avoid divorce. Why do you need to avoid divorce? It's because it's, it happens. But it does break down that integrity piece. It does break down that, that like, okay, the, the community of people are supposed to deal with anger. They're supposed to tr- build trust. Where is that happening when, well, in Jesus' day, women were being disposed of because they didn't actually fulfill the fantasies or whatever that their husband thought. And so it would just be like, the way you would divorce somebody is just be like, you come home and you'd be like, I divorce you. And then you go, well, actually, you would go to the front gate and then the people would be like, yep, you divorce her. And And then he would come home and he would be like, get out, woman. That's kind of the way that it, would, that it was done then. And, and it just breaks the relationship. It breaks the community. It's not something that, that God's like, yeah, that's not the ideal. Now, again, 
just like every other area of evil in the world, it happens and it still happens in the church today. Thank God that we foreshadow. The, the great thing about foreshadowing is that, I mean, I just talked about sexual identity. Now I'm talking about divorce. I talked about pornography. The great thing is that foreshadowing is still looking forward to what God's going to do. It's still looking forward. It's not being like, oh, well, once you did that, you're out. No. No. It's looking forward to, like, this is not, too often these verses are all taken about, oh, well, if you did that, then you're a bad person. No. This is, this is something much, much bigger that's going on here where God's like, I'm setting this up here so that you could be the light of the world, so that you could do this. And I almost said a really bad saying. Stuff happens. Stuff happens. Okay? And so we need to recognize that and, and be like, yeah, okay, I push against it, but I can't control everything. And so don't, we're not going to become a church that's like, oh, well, we have to control everything. Okay, let's finish it off with a lighter one. Oaths. Again, you've heard said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, or by the, for the, it's the city of the great king. Don't take an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. So let what you say simply be yes or no, and anything more comes from evil. Okay. Again, he's pointing out this whole relational integrity piece. He's pointing out the place in our life where he's calling us to have relational integrity and not be like, oh, well, I'm going to, you could be sure that I'm telling the truth because I said that I would give you my Porsche if uh, somebody said that to me, right? No, I'm kidding. Um, I, you could sh be sure that I'm telling the truth because, you know, he put up his property behind that. Well, no. If you can't be trusted with your word, then where's your, where's your relational integrity? Where's your relational integrity? So Jesus is calling people to building relational integrity, saying, as a people who are a light of the world, you're going to push against the darkness and the evil in as much as you can. Guys, every week I fail. Every week I fail. Every week I go to my, to my I have a relationship with, uh, with another pastor and I meet and, and we go through confession together because every week we do something inside of this that we're just like, oh, crap. Okay. And every week we need to be absolved with the fact that said, God knows the evil is present am among us. God knows it's happening in your life. The purpose was that God could dwell with you, and you don't be complacent about it. Don't be complacent about the evil that's affected you or that continues to affect you. But you push against it. You're like, that's not the core of who I am. At the core of who I am finds its trust and its identity in Jesus Christ, and I'm doing my best to relationally have integrity to show that to the rest of the world. You're the light of the world. Together, we do that. So, I have a whole ton more, but what I need to finish with is only trust God to remove evil. 
I'm not actually going to get through it all. It's all good. Trust God to remove evil. Jesus externalizes evil from the person. Romans 12, 9. There's a couple other verses that you've got in your, in your tablet. But Romans 12, 9 says, Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. But Jesus says, love your enemy. If I hate what's evil and I see my enemy as the person of evil, then I hate my enemy. But if I'm able to separate it out and say, I hate what's evil, but I love my enemy. I hate what's evil because I hate how it destroys us. I hate how it contributes to the darkness in the world. But I'm going to love my enemy. And I'm going to love that person as a person. The person isn't the problem. The evil in the world is the problem. Hold off with retaliation. This is actually right at the end, uh, 38 and 42. Hold off with retaliation and love your enemies. Love offered isn't an approval of evil, but it sees evil as separate from the person who is created in the image of God. So much here about building relational integrity. So much here where, where we see that God is separating out the darkness from us. And guys, it's in every single one of us. It has affected you. Whether it affected you externally where somebody did something that made you realize that you didn't have it all. Um, or if it's, uh, or if it's um, something that you're desiring that contributes to the evil, it's still there. So I have a few questions. Sorry, I'm going to go a little over time, but I hope nothing burns in people's ovens. Um, <laughs> reading from the NLT, you are the light of the world. Let your good deeds shine out for all those who see that everyone will praise your Father in heaven. How does this pair with do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing? Excellent. Okay, very good question. Taking two different scriptures. I love this. So what happens here is everybody will see that you did good work. And they will praise God. But then in another part of Scripture, Jesus says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And what he's doing is he's actually saying, when you go and do something, you do it quietly. You, 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 you don't bring attention to yourself because the whole thing isn't about you. So we're, we're talking about almost two different things where we say Israel is the light of the world or now the church, as a corporate body, is the light of the world. And when people look at the church, what is the church doing in Bradford? When people look at that, they glorify God. When people look at me, and when I go, hey guys, I just helped out that poor person. Awesome! Right? I'm glorifying myself. And so that's a really important piece where we have to read these as two different people, where it's the light of the world is a corporate thing, and the individual. Um, is now bringing pride to myself. Good. What's the balance between reconcile the relationship and walk away from toxic relationships that isn't, isn't necessarily unhealthy either? Uh, at what point does it end, end of the spectrum become unhealthy? Okay, so, so here's, here's something that really is important. We need to separate out. We use the word toxic, and we actually apply it to people. That person is toxic in my life. They are toxic people. It becomes a definition of the people, and it, mean, it gives us permission to hate on them. They are the enemy. Jesus says, no, no, no. You love your enemy. You hate the evil. You push against the evil. You don't allow for the evil, which means I can love somebody and get, put distance between us. 
I can fully love somebody, but because they're continuing to hurt me, I can put distance because I hate the evil, but I can love that person in my heart, and I can pray for them, and I can show love to them. And so if I show love to that person in prayer, if I'm showing love to that person in, in, in uh, kindness, uh, but yet not allowing the evil that they, that they are practicing to hurt me, putting that distance there, I am still fulfilling the whole piece of, of God where I'm like, yep, I can't continue with the, with the poisons that are coming. Push against the evil. Love the individual. For I say that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Is righteousness the sanctification through the Spirit, or is, following, or is this following the law? Uh, this is a pretty weighty statement. Yeah, right. So, uh, for I say that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were like, they took the, they, here's what they took really seriously. Push against evil and fight against it. Don't allow any form of evil in your life. Never. They were toxic. I use the word. Um, that's just because it was word suggestion. They were, they were very much about I have achieved something. So, so in their push against evil, they're embracing a different type of evil. So when we talk about the righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, he's talking about their, their zeal towards pushing against the evil. Awesome. Do that. Do that. Push against it as hard as you can. And so, and then we see, we see that, that, uh, that that's, that that's part of what God's praising there. But you see, Jesus totally slams them for their other side. That's a very challenging verse. Talk about it in your province groups too. Last one. Can we work as individuals, as representative of our church community, as being lights as individuals this way too? Okay. Yes. Obviously, when you do something kind, uh, the only question is, did it bring glory to you or did it bring glory to Jesus? Did somebody just think you were a nice person because you were kind or loving or, or, you know, the way you dealt with it? Or were you able to direct that back to Christ? Most of the time, in our social relationships, it just really looks good on us. And so in that way, not really. But when you bring it back to Jesus, if that, if that connection is made, then absolutely, you, you are doing it. What I was trying to get away from is the pressure that individuals feel where the pastor stands up and he's like, you go do this. Bye-bye, guys. Have fun. Good luck. You know, no, it's a communal effort. Okay, I apologize for being way over. Let me pray for us. God, wow, there's a ton in that. That was ambitious to try to get through the, uh, the rest of the chapter. But uh, I pray that you would speak to people. God, I pray that in, in promise groups, people would dig back into this passage and they would, uh, that they would engage it again. And I pray that we would have relational integrity. God, I thank you for every individual here, and I thank you for the church that you're making us, that you're calling us to be. Um, I pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.